I had these dreams, but it didn't dawn on me that I could choose my own life, that I could choose not to have children, that I could choose to be business partners with my husband, that I could choose, you know, to have a belief system that I wanted to have. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. We're here today with Tom and Lisa Bilyeu. How are you guys? Good, man. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for joining us. So, Thank you for having us. Of course. And this is going to be fun because it's our first one we've done with a couple that's also co-founders. So I'm, I'm excited for this because it's kind of, the, again, the two paths coming together and how it all works. So to start, you know, obviously you have both created some amazing brands at this point and you've launched this amazing media company with Impact Theory and, you know, built something very prominent. So prior to building the second fastest growing company in the world and building Impact Theory, I would love to circle all the way back to let's say four years old i mean were you both like hyper nutritionists you know like telling everybody what to eat what to put in their body how to live in a successful life like how did it start yeah i mean i think both of us from the beginning were just the smartest people in the room <laughs> uh you know the best dressed you were you were winning beauty awards uh-huh. uh, i was most likely to succeed now i we were a mess and i'll speak for myself because i actually think my wife maybe had it a little more together than i did but certainly had her own struggles i was not the guy I voted most likely to succeed my own mother quietly assumed that i was going to fail when i left for college my best friend said and i quote i just assumed you'd marshmallow your way through life um <laughs> I wasn't, and when I went to get her father's permission to propose, he said, no, his blessing. I was smart enough to know not to ask for permission. So, and, and to be honest, like everybody had sort of rightly identified where I was. I really was profoundly lazy as a kid. And the thing that I found that you, it's hard to identify is drive. So I had ambition. I knew I wanted to be successful, but I didn't have the drive when I was younger. And so that was something that I really had to develop. When did the desire come in? Like, where were you from? What what did your parents do? Like, where did that come from? So, all right, truly flashing back to four. And then it'll be your your four-year-old's far more interesting than mine. When I was four, I was in Tacoma, Washington, and we were sort of on the outskirts of Tacoma. So we were like the last stop before it became truly rural. So like we shared a fence with people that had cows and horses and stuff like that so not a big city whereas you yeah i was brought up in london which of course is a metropolis so very different to him but i was brought up in a very traditional greek family and so from the age of like six i could literally remember falling on the floor scraping my knee and my grandmother with a really thick greek accent would come running over and be like it's okay it's okay you're gonna be better by the time you're married so like looking back my entire childhood i was almost shaped into being prepared that that was going to be my life, that I'm going to grow up and the pinnacle of my life is going to be getting married. And Which it was, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my whole story, like my, my grandmother actually used to say, your story is already written. And so, really? yeah. You've never told me that before. Yeah, my aunt Nikki, she used to say basically, well, this is the story. So every time something would happen, she was like, well, that was kind of God's will, like God's already written your life. And so I really always thought I was 
going to grow up and get married and have four children. I had this internal crazy ambition. I wanted to move to America. I wanted to make movies, but there's this big difference is like the kid that has these big dreams. And then you start growing up and realizing, oh, people just beat you down enough. It's not possible. Your head's in the clouds. What are you doing? I wanted to study movies at university. And my dad just said, you know, he kept saying no, no, no. And then eventually he's like, well, to be honest, you're just going to be a housewife and a stay at home mom anyway. So study whatever you like. And it wasn't that he meant to be cruel. It was just- no, He his, loved that. He, it was his belief system that yeah. that's what women do. So my growing up was very different to no obviously where I- No one expected me to be a mother. To, no, one. no one expected yeah. you to be a mother. Well, but I'm curious, like, how did that, did you resist that? And so like that drove you to want to be more entrepreneurial or did you kind of go, did you- take that for granted in the sense of like, okay, well, my dad says I'm going to get married. So I'll probably just end up getting married. So it was kind of this dual thinking. It was like, I have these big dreams and of course I'm going to have kids. Like it didn't even dawn on me that not having children was an option because that's where I came from. Like when I first met Tom, I remember maybe one or two weeks into dating, he turned around to me and he said, why do you believe in God? And I didn't have an answer because I'd never asked myself the question. Mm -hmm. And it's like that David Foster Wallace quote, you know, this is water. Yeah. yeah, this is water. And it's just like, you, the fish don't realize they're surrounding water because that's all they know. And so for me, I had these dreams, but it didn't dawn on me that I could choose my own life, that I could choose not to have children, that I could choose to be business partners with my husband, that I could choose, you know, to have a belief system that I wanted to have instead of being passed it on from generations. And I, I literally didn't realize that until I met Tom. And because we came, I think, from such different backgrounds, we kind of, at least for, for me, you really opened my eyes to things that I don't know if I would have seen if I had married within my culture, within my town, within where I grew up. Yeah. That makes sense. And so where, and so you, did you go to film school in UK or? So, yeah. So I went to the film school in the UK, did my degree and then literally was like, okay, so you're going to get a job up until you meet a guy and get married. And that was kind of what everyone just assumed and expected. I had this passion and dream to come to America. And my friend handed me this brochure after my degree. And she was like, Hey, there's this film school in Los Angeles. You pay privately and you actually get to film on the back lot of Universal Studios. And I was like, this is a dream come true. Like, I'm, I can't believe that's actually possible. So I went back to my dad, I persuaded him, like, I've just graduated just three more months, let me do this. And then I'm going to go and, you know, get a job and get married. Yeah. So he, he so he gave me the money to for me to come to America. Day one, I walk into my classroom, Mr. Billu is my teacher. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and that is how we met. <laughs> so how did you get there, Tom? What was the path that took you to teaching film school? So from the time I was 12, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. And that was just an all-consuming desire. And where did it come not, from? Not to liken myself to Bill Gates, but it was very similar in the way that he found his passion. So it just so happened that he was coming up right at the time where computers were becoming a little bit more mainstream. And so his, I think his high school had access to one. And so he went in and he was programming and it was sort of the cutting edge of the cutting edge at the time. And the that same was just, I, I remember that from outliers. It was his junior high. It was the first junior high in the country to have a computer lab. Right. And so you think, how lucky is that? And, you know, when people talk about, are people sort of meant to be the person they become, I'll often cite Steve Jobs and say, if he was born a thousand years ago, he would not have thought about making the iPhone, right? I mean, the context is you just don't have it. Yeah. So Bill Gates 
is in the context of the period in which he was born. Mm -hmm. And very much is true for me. So it just so happened that my dad's company, for whatever weird reason, got a camcorder and they would let their staff bring it home. So on the weekends when it wasn't being used, and so for whatever reason, my dad thought, oh, this might be cool. And so he brought it home, but he didn't end up using it, I did. And so I started filming stuff and my dad ends up making this offhanded remark because basically at that point, it's you and your friends doing dumb stuff, right? Now what you can turn into a huge YouTube celebrity for, you were doing just for you and your friends back then. And my dad goes, I actually think you're even better behind the camera than you are in front of the camera. Now he may have been saying that because he was embarrassed by what I was like in front of the camera, I don't know. But I do remember thinking, I'm the one that knows where to put the camera to make something funny. Because you could make a joke out of the same thing, depending on where you put the camera. And I just had seen enough film. I had an intuition for where to put the camera. So anyway, he makes that comment. And that just like sets me on a path. It's what I now call the law of accident, which is most people live their entire lives by the law of accident. Somebody makes a comment, a girl breaks up with you for something. And so you go and get hardcore about that, right? A guy gets pushed around for being weak and he becomes a bodybuilder or a martial artist, right? It's just some weird little thing nudges you in a direction. So my dad another day comes home because now I'm saying, oh, I want to make movies. Mm -hmm. And that's how my dad and I are bonding. And my dad says, oh, hey, I just talked to a friend and the best film school in the world is USC. So I was like, okay, cool. So I'm going to go to USC then. And I don't even apply to the film school. I just think you get into USC and that's that. So I go to the orientation and they're like, oh, no, 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 you have to apply separately. And the deadline's already passed. So I was like, oh, shit, like, what do I do? So that becomes a whole thing. But I I end up getting into film school and then graduate from film school and enter the darkest period of my life because I have no idea how to break into the industry YouTube does not exist. The you video cameras lock you in. They don't just introduce you to Spielberg and call it a day. Believe it or not. <laughs> and the irony of ironies is that was sort of what I had in mind that I would shoot a senior thesis film and then get my three picture deal and you know the rest would be history. It's the his building or someone. What's the school film school at USC called now? Is it the George Lucas school? Film? It, it was Lucas when I was there. I think it still okay. is. But Spielberg now has his name on one of the buildings, but he did yeah. not when I was there. And that was really terrifying because now I have this big dream and legitimately no concept of how to make that dream come true. And it's one of those where, well, you need an agent. How do you get an agent? The only way to get an agent is to not need the agent. And so they want to then tag along because you've created some success and they're going to help you shepherd that through the system. And that just, I couldn't get my head around that. And so it was like this sort of grand injustice, but I had a fixed mindset. And so I was just angry about it and frustrated and lost. So anyway, because I had gone to film school, somebody said, hey, there's this film school starting called the New York Film Academy and they need TAs basically. And so I started as a TA, but then somebody got fired and I ended up stepping into their role overseeing all of post-production. And then at this time, it was only in the summers. Then the next summer, they brought me back as a teacher. And then after that summer, that fall, they made me a full-time employee and they opened up a full branch. And that's when she walked in. Got it. And so I'm curious on the personal side, and you can cut me off, but how do, how do you navigate that where you got the student teacher thing going on? You know, man, it's interesting. So the world that we're living through now is really fascinating. And I don't, you know, I don't want to take your show somewhere that you don't want your show to go. But it is when I think about how in today's we world, never would have gotten together. no way, I would have been so terrified to make a move. Now, keep in mind, this was a school for adults. So my wife was in her 20s. I was in my 20s. But there's no question I was her teacher. And 
what I knew was, first of all, it was relatively common for teachers and students to, you know, have relationships, whether short-term or long-term. I had never before. And I just thought, whoa, I had recently learned how to be good with women, which is a whole nother story, which I did not know. And I'm now in my sort of- I need a quick part of that story. I want to know what that means. Uh, (laughs) Dude, I was a train wreck. And this is all of this, like me not being the one that anybody thought would be successful, me having a terrible time with girls, me, you know, basically screwing up my film school career, me not knowing how to break into the industry, all of that, like that's the setup for the guy that ends up being successful. And that's why I often quote 50 Cent and I say, I came in the game humble. Can't nobody tell me shit now. Because it's like, you can tell me that the strategies that I have don't work, but I've used them in my life and I use them every day. And they have, you know, created this insane amount of success. So anyway, I found a guy that was very successful with women where I was not. And I just said, dude, what's the secret? And he said, oh, you have to be an asshole. And I was like, that can't be true. This is so stupid. I cannot hear that cliche one more time without punching somebody in the face. And then I was like, well, hold on. There's a reason people keep saying it. Now it does not fit my personality to be a jerk. So I was like, is there something else that they're talking about? And I realized what he means is you need to be aloof. You have to seem like you don't need the relationship. And in sort of flipping it and just asking, what do I find attractive? It's confidence. And I remember thinking, there were women I've seen that weren't sort of classically beautiful women, but they had so much confidence. And so you would find yourself drawn to them. And so I found that way more interesting. So I just thought, can I embody that same level of confidence? And I did what I call living it to learn it instead of faking it till you make it. But I just started embodying confidence and it was insane. It was like flipping a switch. And I went from not being able to get female attention to getting female attention relatively easily. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. So anyway, she walks in right at that moment where I now understand how to get female attention and I ignore her for a month and then basically ask her out. And it was in the ignoring of the month that of course piqued my interest more and more and more. Yeah. (laughs) So the strategy worked. And then did you get together was like first date planning your first business? Like what happened on that first date? (laughs) Well, the first date, I knew I had to be careful. So I played it such that if it did not go well, I could have said it was all, I took her to a friend's film premiere that was screening. So it was like obviously film oriented. I didn't take her to some fancy restaurant. Don't try and pawn it off like that's why (laughs) he did. He's so cheap. It was my favorite restaurant. Here's the truth. But it was a dime. He eventually invites me out to this movie screening and he's like, oh, we'll grab food beforehand. So he's making out like he was so strategic that he just took me to a dive because he didn't want it to look like a date. It was his favorite Chinese restaurant. So I'm used... I'm used to, or at the time I was used to, guys, all that they cared about was their cars and their looks. That's just where I was brought up. And so I was kind of trained that that's what was important. So here's a guy that's super confident. I think he's going to turn up. He's going to have like this beast car and and he turns up and he's just in his work clothes he walks me to his beaten old, old Buick and the like the handle doesn't work properly <laughs> and the back seat is just full of like complete junk and so it was like I was totally shocked by like the, she thought I was a player I, I thought I was about as far from a player as you're gonna get but then he opened the car door for me and I had never met any guy that was ever chivalrous ever Like I was 21 when we met and not one guy had ever opened the door for me. So in that first day, I was like all these preconceived notions that I thought was what 
attracted me to guys, right? Nice cars, the way they did their hair. He was the complete opposite. And I was completely smitten by the fact that he opened the car door and he wanted to talk. Like he actually had something good to say and something interesting to say. And so we turn up at this B restaurant, which in England, you don't even get grades. So I didn't even realize it was a B restaurant. (laughs) So it's in the strip mall. So again, going to, I'm very, at the time I was very used to lovely restaurants, three course meals. Like that was the dating life that I had led in London. I grew up in Tacoma. So he grew up in Tacoma. So (laughs) so we literally go to this dive restaurant. It's, there's actually a rip in the, the seat. But after the first five minutes, we just started talking. And I'd never met a man like him before. And so by then, I like didn't even think about the restaurant of what we were surrounded by. I was so hooked and just staring into his eyes. Like I even remember thinking, oh my God, he's so good looking. Can I really just keep staring into his eyes? Like I was so smitten because also he'd played me, right? For the month leading up to it, he made me more and more interested. And then even going into the relationship from my perspective, I never thought I was going to see him again after the class. He never thought he was going to see me again. So I'm just thinking this is a great story to tell my friends. And when I'm in my 90s, as like the grandmother, I'm this cool grandmother that had a fling with, you know, this hot American teacher. So I don't think it's anything serious. He just dated this girl who went a little crazy. So he's like, oh, great. Lisa has to legally leave the country because she's on a visa. So even if she falls for me, she can't go crazy because she has to legally leave. So we we both went into that first date, obviously still kind of, at, you know, I dressed up and I still wanted to, you know, be attractive towards him or to him. But there was no fakeness. There was no, this is who I, you know, oh, if is he the one? So I should say the right things in case he's the one. Mm-hmm. Like it never dawned on me. So I'm saying all the real stuff that I want in life. He's asking all the really raw questions. I'm like, who? is this guy so from my perspective I was just like after that first date I was like he's the most unique interesting man I've ever met and the complete opposite to what I thought I would be attracted to the complete opposite he started like reading me his poetry once we started to get into I was like a guy that's confident cocky attractive and freaking writes poetry and not afraid to read it to me like that's also the extra thing he was confident and secure enough with himself that reading me his poetry, he didn't seem like he was insecure about it. So all these things that I think that I wouldn't have been open to had we been like dating seriously, I think I would have missed. Well, that's awesome. So where did it go from there? Like what you guys, you, you finished the class obviously, but you guys go, we end up getting married. <laughs> I assume that part happened at some point, but to get back on the professional side of things, did you guys go start making films together? Like was what happened from the, in the so film? We actually did. So we, one of her student films, I was the cinematographer on. Uh-huh. And that was sort of our first working together. And then we ended up, I, because we end up getting into a relationship, but it's obviously long distance. So I would go live in London for a while. She would come back and live in LA. And how um, long were you together in LA before that happened? We were together for two months in LA. Then I go visit her in London, realize for it was like 10 days or something on the flight back, realize I'm in love and think, oh my God, now here we go. And so that begins like, how do you deal with the back and forth? And when I went to London for the summer, it was with the New York Film Academy and I was helping them set up their London branch. And so she ended up working as a TA for me. And that was the first time where we worked in sort of an official capacity. 
-hmm. came back to the US after we got married. She was a TA again at the New York Film Academy. I was teaching there and running the office. And so that was the beginning of our work relationship. And how old were you at the point you were running the office for them? I started probably when I was right before we got married. So say 24. Okay. When I was running the LA office, and then that takes us into sort of 25 in London, and then 26 when I'm back here in LA running it again after we get married. So, 20, you know, 24, you know, a couple years out of school, that's pretty young to be running an office for any type of business, even a small one, but being in management and stuff. That's, I'm connecting the dots here a little bit in terms of like you, you started to get that kind of management experience right there. And the way that I do that for anybody who wants to know the path to walk was I would work an inhuman number of hours. Mm-hmm. I was clocking 90 hour weeks at somebody else's company. And that's somehow become passe where people are like, I'm not getting paid for this or whatever. It's like, either you want to climb or you don't. And my thing was, I wanted to be indispensable. And I've, I've always said, you can put me at the lowest rung in a company and two years later, I'm going to run it. Like, that's just the way I move and always have, even when I didn't have the drive and I was sort of in a fixed mindset. The one thing that I believed in is if I want something, I will put an inhuman amount of effort into it. But what's interesting actually though, is because you were doing that before we got married and then we moved to England to get married. So because I've got a massive Greek family, we had agreed we were going to get married in England and then we were both going to move over to LA together. And so for six months, he was on a fiance visa. And so I, we had agreed, well, look, we've got six months to plan the wedding. I can work. So I'm just going to get any job out I can just so that we can start saving for the next six months. So I actually got a job as a receptionist at a car dealership. And every day, so initially we'd agreed, oh, this is what he's like, I'm going to write. This will be fantastic. I've got six months to just be creative. And what I didn't realize, which I'll kind of let you tell the story, but I would come home every lunchtime. And that was our agreement. I would go to work and he was the, the stay at home boyfriend and he would make me lunch. And so every day I would come home and he would have a sandwich ready for me. Now, what I didn't see is what was happening to him behind the scenes internally, which this kind of over time you started to tell me, but I think it's really important because you were really freaking hardcore New York Film Academy. Then we went to England and basically. Yeah, this is where it. It's easy to mythologize your story and to oversimplify it. And it gets much messier when you actually sort of go beat by beat. Yep. And the reality was I was in this period where I didn't have the drive to figure things out and I had a fixed mindset. So I didn't believe that I could put energy and effort into getting better. So this is when I said that I, in my early 20s, hit this really dark period in my life. Even this like insane amount of hours that I'm working at the New York Film Academy is one of the worst periods of my life. And Mm -hmm. so I would clock these insane hours and then I would go home and lay on the floor and just be like, what am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. And it was... It was not a happy, good time. And so I would lay in bed for four and five hours a day, every day, while I should have been writing, doing something, trying to, you know, move myself forward, but just could not get the the drive together. So Mm -hmm. if I was in a situation and somebody had sort of, you know, taken care of all the problems and just said, show up and work this many hours, I could do that. But if they said, think for yourself, carve a path, find your own way, then I was paralyzed. And I was so fearful that I would not be able to make anything of my life. I just couldn't move. What you're alluding to is most people. I think most people have a really tough time creating their own constraints versus just falling into someone else's. And that's why, what is it, 1% of the world are entrepreneurs is I think the rest 
you know, and there's a lot of people that have a great job and do great work or have a great company they work for that allows them to be, you know, explore things. But I do believe that a lot of people, and I've heard this from a lot of friends around me that aren't entrepreneurs, that it's like, I don't want to do that. I just want to go to work, be told what to do, get it done and go home. And then I think you even said that the fear of me coming home at lunch is what sometimes got you out of bed. Oh, that's what got me out of bed every day is I knew if I didn't get up at that point, I wouldn't be able to have the sandwich ready. And then you'd be horrified. So for him, it was the shame of me coming home at lunchtime and him still being in bed. Now, of course, I didn't even realize that, you know, and so that's just been a big part of us as a couple communicating, always saying the honest thing, always, you know, telling each other where, especially now that we work together, that's so important for us to do. But I had no idea that he was, you know, getting more and more depressed when we were in England. Yeah. And so did that get better when you came back or that last? Not immediately, no, it really was having to put together a growth mindset. And so I had started reading about the brain, but like things hadn't really clicked into place yet. It's again, mythology versus reality. I'm starting, you know, right after college, I'm starting to piece things together. You know, I meet Lisa and I have some of the beginnings of the ideas that I'm trying to work out, but I'm still not pushing myself to actually live up to them. And it was meeting her was part of it. So her holding me to the standard. So I could have given you the rhetoric of I'm going to do all this. In fact, I was. You told my dad that. Told her, told her dad, look, I'm going to. So when her dad said no, that he didn't want me to marry her. I said, look, I know what you see is this broke out of work kid. But I'm telling you one day I'm going to make your daughter a rich woman. And he was like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, sure. And that like really haunted me. I was like, I made this big promise. And the internally, and people are either going to get this or they're going to think I'm crazy. Internally, what I would say to myself is I now have a witness to my crimes. Yeah. Whereas before, if I was broke and never made anything of my life, it only harmed me. Yeah. But now she was planning on, you know, being the mother of our children and staying at home. Like this was now it was like I was making her life worse. And Mm -hmm. I was taking her from a family that, you know, was doing great for themselves. Her dad was very successful and making her clip coupons. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, yo, you have taken her out of, you know, a sort of good stable home. You've got her in this tiny ass apartment in Hollywood and she's clipping coupons. Like this is not going the way that you said it was like, at some point, like you have a certain amount of a grace period to make it happen. But if you're not doing anything, then your life is going to look exactly like this. There's actually a Tony Robbins quote. He says, if you don't know where you want to be in five years, you're, you're already there. there. Yep. And it was like, oh God, the thought that I'm already where I'm going to be in five years was so terrifying. And the thought of my father-in-law being right, that she shouldn't have married me was like terrifying. And so the shame of just laying around and doing nothing was beginning to wear thin. And so I showed sort of a glimmer of hope towards the end of our time in London, where I finally did sit down and write a screenplay, still battled with getting out of bed, but I at least spent the rest of the time doing something, you know, come back to LA. And then what ends up really solidifying it. So I've got my wife, I've got my father-in-law, and then I end up meeting these entrepreneurs who end up being my partners in Quest. That's almost a decade down the road from that. But at that time was now I was around people that were holding me to that standard. So my father-in-law thought in a certain way, my wife thought in a certain way, and these new guys thought in a certain way. And it just got me to really adopt those values. And when you switch your beliefs and your values, now you're off to the races. And how'd you meet those guys? What were they doing? They saw me speak about filmmaking. And I was good at that. 
And so they were like, whoa, this kid is pretty sharp. We need a copywriter. And so what if we brought him in to be a copywriter? And so I was like, all right, cool, let's do it. And people thought that I was crazy because it was a step away from filmmaking. But the idea was I was coming to the world with my hand out. And if I wanted to control the art, I needed to control the resources. So they made this really cool pitch, which now I'm trying to like give to the entire world, which is don't act like an employee act like a partner. If you deliver enough value, the person will actually make you a partner. And so I took that seriously and just went crazy, adopted that mindset, the value system, and it wasn't that easy. I had to put a lot of work into it. But like over, you know, a span of say six or seven years, like I really changed how I move in the world. And they did make me a partner in earlier company called Awareness Technologies. And then making a very long story short, I ended up quitting because I'm so unhappy chasing money. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, what did you start copywriting for originally? What type of It was a software company, security software. So just totally boring, nothing I was interested in whatsoever. I was just trying to be a good entrepreneur, a slick marketer, Mm -hmm. and, and did that for a while and really just took pride in my willingness to suffer more than most people. And then finally, Lisa pulled me aside and said, look, the amount that you're working and how unhappy you are, you're now damaging the marriage. And I've always been very clear that my marriage is my number one priority. So yep. knew something had to change, went in and quit. By the way, and touche to you guys having the communication ability to be able to say that. Because most That's people- say he, Thank you. He, yeah, he pushed past it quickly because here's the thing. So we- had agreed that he was going to go out and make the money so that we could then make movies. So mm-hmm. as a team, it was like he had this vision, he knew where he was trying to get to. And so my side of it, I was, we had agreed, okay, I'll stay at home, I'll support you. We'll do the Steve Jobs model where he only wears, you know, one color shirt so he doesn't have to make any decisions. So I said to Tom, I'll make all decisions. Outside of business, I'll do everything else. I'll cook for you, I'll clean, I'll put your clothes out. Like I could own being a part of this team that was going to go out and make enough money so that we can make movies. And we were going to do that for a year. But what he just, he was so, I don't know, you were so driven by learning and growing. And obviously he had this vision of making this money. It turned into eight years of that. Technically, I always told her 18 months. So he would come back every 18 months. And I'm like, okay, now are we going to do it? And he's just like, no, another 18 months. So he kept pushing it off. Before I knew it, I'd been a stay-at-home wife for eight years, and that was something I I wasn't enjoying. I didn't look for that. I didn't ask for that, but I'd slipped into it. And so kind of almost reflecting back, I was just trained, right? Growing up, like I'd said from the beginning, I was trained. You're going to be a good housewife. You're going to be a good housewife. So even though that wasn't my goal, I very easily slept into it. And he was working so hard. And when he says he put everything into like being a partner, he put everything into being a partner to those guys to the point where we moved. So when he first, he's like, I want to be a partner. I'm willing to work hard at it. We need to move. He wanted to get a place that was within, what was it, two seven minutes? minutes seven but minutes. walking. No, Remember no, that? No, there was, no. So there was one place that he tried to convince me to get because he's like, if they need me on a Saturday at 3 a.m. And I'm like, who's going to need you at 3 a.m. for copy? <laughs> but he's like, it doesn't matter. I, like, I am all in. Like, we're all in. If they need me, I'm going to be able to. So he would seven minutes. He would drive or run there to see the distance from their house to where we were going to move to. And so he convinced me to get a, an apartment within seven minutes of where Where was it? Where? This is in Marina Del Rey. Okay. Let the record reflect, I never ran. This was always a driving <laughs> thing. But that, was, but that was his, like he was so 
specific. So when people think about how do you like no BS actually get to the top, that's how much he was willing to move so that he could be that close. Um, well, I, you know, if you have the right environment where it doesn't go unnoticed, I mean, we you kind of alluded to where the story goes at the next company you are fully partner and CEO of, like the you know that's not unnoticed by other entrepreneurial people that like this person is grinding to help our dream come true and our vision be you know come to life, like the right boss. Don't get me wrong, there are terrible bosses out there that don't notice that, but if you're working for the right people, that goes a long way. Yeah, no question. And he was so driven to succeed that he no longer thought about maybe he did, but like. Is he enjoying it? And over those eight years, so I start to lose myself more and more in those eight years. So I'm now relying on him almost more and more to come home and bring like the entertainment home because I had nothing to talk about. And he got worse over the years to want to talk about things. So after the eight year mark, it got to the point where I don't know who my husband is. Like, I really don't care about money. Like, that's why for him, it was a big deal. But us moving to America and collecting coupons, I was like, but I love you. Like, that's me and him, like, we're we're in it sink or swim we go together so it got to the point where I'm like at this point I've lost the one thing that is the most meaningful to me my husband so stop chasing money I don't freaking care but I do care I want my husband back and that was when we kind of had that very honest conversation and he went in and quit Got it. And and so what happened after that? So that ends up being a whole conversation with my partners. I'm driving home after quitting and I gave back $2 million worth of equity and just said, look, I, I can't keep doing this. And as I am pulling into the garage and we had planned to move to like some small town in Greece so that I could just write and learn the Greek language and we could get our expenses. Beautiful. Not the worst, done, right? Not the worst plan. Exactly, no, it would have right? been, it would have been a lot of fun. And they said, look, come out to dinner with us. I go out to dinner and they're like, we actually feel the same way. We're not happy with this company. So what would it need to look like for us to keep working together? And so we all laid out what it would need to be. It would need to be something based on passion where we can stop thinking about money and think about value creation and you know, on and on. And that the answer to that ended up being Quest Nutrition. And that, of course, irony of ironies, we stop putting money as our number one priority. We put value creation and all of a sudden we make a company that's a thousand times bigger, maybe more than our previous company. I mean, it's just crazy. And that changes everything and gives us the capital that we actually need to begin the studio. And four years ago, we did exactly that. That's awesome. So that is the story I'm looking for. So you guys, how did you come up with nutrition? I mean, you were a copywriter and two software guys, it sounds like. So behind the scenes, the three of us were obsessed with health and fitness. So we were working out like fiends. And one of my partners was just insane in terms of his research and understanding of biology and nutrition. And so I was thinking, man, as a marketer, let me tell you, I want to take advantage of that. Like finding something where the person is going to be doing that thing anyway And so for me, marketing, I was going to be doing that anyway. I'm going to be focusing on psychology. I'm going to be focusing on storytelling because that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. So whether I aim that at software, whether I aim that at a nutrition company, like whatever, I'm going to be studying this stuff anyway. And my partner is going to be studying nutrition anyway. And it was not lost on us that you're making a product that people actually eat. So imagine people ate their car, you know, like that would be a great business to be in or gas for razors, right? We used to talk about razors all the time. It's like you want to give away the the razor like piece and then you sell the razor blades and same yep. with printers and ink. It's like, it's a model, right? So we thought, okay, this is cool. This gives us a way to add value to people's lives over and over and over. And if we can 
make the mission of the company trying to end metabolic disease, like that'll give us clarity of focus. That'll allow people to understand who we are as marketers. And we just, if I can sort of pat myself on the back for a second, we understood that before the world changed to that. Like the world, yeah. like now they make those demands of basically every company. But at the time that was so weird. People thought we were out of our minds. And I said, look, companies are not nameless, faceless organizations, and people are going to start to demand. They want to know what you stand for as a company. They want somebody to step out front, say, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is what we're about. And so I said, let me put that message out there. My partners agreed. We understood social media before it was called social media. I just saw it as a way to build community. And so we were obsessed with Kevin Kelly's idea of a thousand true fans. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, let's just really matter to people that really understand what we're building. And yeah you know, make it as applicable to as many people as possible, but without trying to be all things to all people. Be this one very narrow band of we're going to end metabolic disease, but you do that by leveraging behavior, not trying to change it. So we knew that people ate snack food, whether you want them to or not, whether it's good for them or not, they're going to do it. So what if we could make food that they chose based on taste, but it happened to be good for them? And yep. that was the motto. And between that and social media and becoming our own manufacturers, just ends up Enjoy being this family. revolutionary thing. So when did you realize you had stumbled upon something massive? Like you obviously got into it thinking it was a good idea, but like when was the point? I assume it wasn't at the point you were a billion dollar company in five years. There was probably a key point before that, that you guys were like, hey, this is really good. <laughs> it was everything along the way was just clicking and clicking and clicking. So, you know, it doesn't mean that it wasn't hard. It was brutally difficult, but at the same time, it was the right move at the right time. And so the world responded. Now in the very, very beginning, it was like, we couldn't even give it away. But once we solved that, we got some key early influencers, which of course they weren't called that back then, but like some key people that had influence, vouch for it on social media, then it like started going. And so probably about 18 months in, we were like, whoa, this is getting crazy. Where you're doubling month over month, every month, for two years, three years. I mean, it was it was so absurd that like, you couldn't believe, you'd do 10 million in a month and be like, well, there's no way we're doing 20 million next month. And then you end up doing 25 million in a single day. And it was like, this is insanity. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that is, most people don't get to experience that kind of growth at that scale. And how, I mean, what were the challenges? You, you know, it sounds like sales weren't a challenge pretty quickly into the business, but where were the- Manufacturing is hard. Growing by 57,000% in three years is hard in software. Imagine yeah. doing that when it's, you go from five employees to 3,000 employees, you go from renting a kitchen by the hour to having 300,000 square feet, tens of millions of dollars of equipment. You have to deal with engineers to make the equipment because by the way, there's nothing off the shelf that will work for you. You're traveling all over the country and sometimes all over the world trying to buy equipment and find manufacturers of equipment that can make something that will work in your product. It was insane. I once woke up in the middle of the night with my hands cramping closed because I had been, we had to like knead the dough, essentially the protein matrix. It was brutally taxing physically. And for almost two years, I wore a hairnet almost every day and a lab coat and gloves and made protein bars. It was not glamorous. It was, you're in the mix. And we, because manufacturing in LA, you're going to be in Compton and Compton adjacent areas. And so we had, we had put the word out that because of my belief system, I don't care who you are today. I want to know who you want to become and the price you're willing to pay to get there. So if you have a felony record, I don't care about that. Like if you're willing to clean up your life and bust your ass, you're my kind of guy. 
So we put the word out that even if you had a felony conviction, we would consider you for employment. So mm -hmm. we had Crips, Bloods on the same line. It was crazy. Former drug dealers. It was insane, man. But they mm -hmm. were amazing. And really, Impact Theory in many ways is a response to the extraordinary humans that we met in the inner cities who were doing nothing with their life because they just had the wrong mindset. They had all the raw materials. They were plenty smart enough, capable of doing anything. And I was just like, yo, if you can get these people the right sort of mental operating system, like mm -hmm. you could unleash a whole lot of human potential. And that's exactly, because we always knew we wanted to make movies, but we ended up deciding we were going to make exactly one type of content. And that was content that would give somebody a growth mindset. And so that became the rallying cry that started back at Quest. When I love that full circle. So how was the dynamic between the two of you at Quest? Like, what were you doing, Lisa, while he was needing dough? So when they first when they first came up with the idea, they were still running the tech company. So yeah. they're like, we need someone on the side that can just, you know, mail bars if you get an order, you know, things like that, put boxes together. And being, you know, at that point, being the good, very traditional wife supporting my husband, you know, he was like, do you mind helping? And then the one thing that also made a difference is he said, if Quest doesn't succeed, we can lose the house because we put it up as collateral. So here I am, I've got my husband asking me to help. So of course, there's that pressure of, I want to make sure that I come through for my husband and then the pressure of losing the house I really don't want to lose my house so when he was like do you mind helping I was like what do you need me to do so we were all making bars together we all we, I would measure some ingredients at my house his business partner's wives would measure ingredients at theirs we would all meet up at this rental kitchen and then literally for hours with knives and rolling pins we had this whole system at night after a full day of work so yeah, yeah. and so we had like this whole line so like the big muscly men were doing the rolling then they would pass it on to the less muscly guys and they would do the, the cutting and then they were so it was like this we had this whole system but then it was like now we have to ship them out well Lisa you don't work so can you do it and that's really where it started from of like I, I was just helping out I'll help out my husband as much as I can I'll ship bars from my living room floor but what I didn't expect was the company was going to grow at 57,000 percent so when you grow that that speed you go from shipping one or two bars from your living room floor then it's like oh my god we've got 10 orders we need to do it from our business partner's garage and then it's like well how do I mail this stuff because I've no clue about shipping so then I started to think about how do I sideline things like how do I get you know big packages out quickly so I was taking candy to the post office people and they loved me so they would allow me to go to the front of the queue but again I didn't expect to grow at 57,000 percent and because I was all in I just everyone was like well Lisa you know this well, oh, well Lisa you've been doing it well Lisa you've been doing it so before I knew it within two years I had a 10,000 square foot shipping department 40 employees underneath me where most of them were felons and we were shipping out 80 million dollars of inventory and I had zero experience and along the way I started to learn new things new skills I started to develop a more growth mindset because he was developing it and so he was just kind of you know rubbing off on me and then I started to realize after about a year I kind of like this like I'm no longer doing it for my husband I'm doing it because I feel good about myself like going into work and not knowing something or someone literally telling me hey there's no way you can get bars to Dubai overnight for Justin Bieber true story. And I was like, well, if Justin Bieber needs them, we got to get them. And everyone, all UPS, everyone's like, it's not possible. It's not possible. And so I'm just like, 
well, I can't disappoint my husband. I can't not show up for the team. Of course it's possible. So I literally just like started reading their mandates of how you allow packages into Dubai. And then I got on the phone and asked for the manager of the UPS company and like, why let me get on the phone to the UPS people in Dubai. And so I just figured it out. I made enough calls and refused to stop, not because I was confident, but because I was so scared of failing because I didn't want to not show up for my husband that I didn't stop it. No, I didn't stop it. It wasn't possible. I didn't even stop at least. You have no freaking idea what you're doing, which I could have, most people normally stop there because you have no idea what you're doing and embarrassed to fail. I didn't allow myself that luxury. But because of that, I was growing, learning so much that after a couple of years, we sat down and had the honest discussion. I was like, I love being in business. I love what I do. I don't know if I want children anymore. And we now have to figure out what this new life looks like for both of us. And so that was just a massive change for me and led me into where I am now. But the biggest thing is even at the time I turned around to Tom because he was technically still my boss, right? He's the CEO and I'm the, I was the head of shipping. So you're the president and I was the head of shipping. And so he I turned to him and I said, if at any point I'm not fulfilling my duties, I never want a job just because I'm your wife. Like that actually doesn't make me feel good. So if you need it, I'm going to give you permission to fire me, hire above me or demote me if I'm not living up to expectations of the role I am filling. And having that pressure on me felt great. It allowed me to push myself to show up every day, but it also allowed him to never just keep me if I'm not competent at it, which then allowed me to challenge myself to make sure I was always competent. Yeah, no, I think that's great because it is so hard, friends or family to work with each other unless you have that very clear out, so to speak, because it all it just gets awkward. Even if you're close, your communication's open. Nobody wants to make that move unless it's a very clear from the beginning. So that's great. And so how long did you manage both? How long before you sold or got out of the software side of things? They overlap for about a year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So you and you dealt with pretty fast growth from the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was the first one to leave. So awareness, the software company. Uh So I overlapped both for, I don't know, maybe six months. Uh And then my next partner came over and then the third partner came over after the full year when we finally sold, sold that company. But he took a massive pay cut to do that. So that was another thing. Our house was up on the line and he took a huge pay cut, which meant that we had to sell our cars. We had to, we kept one car, but you know, I went back to collecting coupons. And so, but that was just, to me, that was a no brainer. I'd rather have my husband alive and thriving and collect coupons than have him completely miserable and live off a six figure salary, you know, that pays the bills, but doesn't change our lives. Yep. No, it's totally fair. And I, I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of like the spousal support in these things. My wife, the same way and super supportive. I actually met her a month after I started my company. And as you guys are well aware, those first year two, like you're not really a whole person. <laughs> and so having someone that sticks through you with that and doing it together is even better. But like, yeah, it's, it means a lot. It's what allows you to keep running at that pace. And so how many years did you run Quest before you ended up selling that? I was there for seven years. Okay. So yeah. And then we sold like proper exit where none of the three founders have anything to do with the company now. I think two and a half years after that. A year. Okay. Yeah. Did you have a first exit when you left or did you actually just find it? So we took money 
as like a small investment. So small in terms of percentage, but it was huge in terms of raw dollars. So I knew I'd never have to work again. And we just got to the point where we didn't necessarily share a vision on how to move forward. And we had the finances where it didn't matter. So it was like, hey, cool, you guys do your thing, do what you think is best. This was always for me to start the studio anyway. So we took basically the studio that we had built inside Quest, spun yep. it out into a standalone company that's now Impact Theory. And so, yeah, tell me about that, the nascent of that. What's that turned into? The one thing I want to say, so he you know, has very big dreams and very, very audacious vision. And so he just came home. We had saved the money that we'd gotten for Quest and we were going to build our dream house. Like the dream house that got us through when we were like really small days at Quest, when we were so tired, we would drive around talking about this dream house. We finally were building it. And he turns around, he's like, do we really need a dream house or do we actually want to change lives? And so I just looked and I was like, screw it. Let's just change lives. So we ended up taking all that money and then building the entire company within our house but instead of knocking it down and rebuilding it we literally built the whole we built studios inside the house we had 25 employees but that was a a very big thing for us because again every day like we tinkered with retiring and buying an island I think for all of five minutes and we're like you know the truth is it it doesn't drive us like we're not driven by that it really is creating and changing people's lives so you know and then like I said I know who I married and so I knew how ambitious he was I knew how audacious his goals were and so anytime he comes up with these really crazy ideas that could we could lose everything I'm just like I know who you are and that's who I married and for me to change that or now put like say no out of fear didn't sit well with me so he yeah I mean he just your vision I love it Okay. Sorry, I totally like, I think I derailed us there. No, that was great. I, I like it a lot. And so when you left where you were, had you already been planning this or was this like, you got the money, you left Quest and then you're like, okay, we had talked about this. Should we get into it? Or like, did you have a firm plan of this is what we're doing? Yeah, I knew what we were going to do. I just thought that it would be in Quest. I thought that you know, we had gotten to the point where my partners and I were sort of each building sort of subsidiary things within the company to follow our passions and just decided that it made more sense for us to break those out. And so knew what we wanted to do. So literally my last day at Quest was on Monday, I think. So going on Monday, wrap everything up. And then on Tuesday, we start Impact Theory. So we didn't even take a day off. It was just literally right to the next thing. And from the beginning, the rallying cry was to build the next Disney. So to what makes Disney an interesting model is not just their level of success, but that they told one kind of story from a thousand different angles over and over and over. And because of that, the brand itself means something. So if I say I'm going to go see a Sony movie or a Warner Brothers movie or a Paramount movie, you don't know anything about it. But if I say I'm going to go see a Disney movie, you already know something. And so that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to create a studio where it's like, oh, this is an impact theory, film, TV show, comic book, whatever. I know something about it. And for us, it's, again, about empowerment. So giving people a growth mindset, full stop. And everything that we do, whether it's direct the camera stuff, like the interview shows that we do, Women of Impact, Impact Theory, our university, Impact Theory University, or the narrative fiction stuff, it's all about giving people that mindset. And the only argument we had when we started Impact Theory was about the shares. And the argument was, I told him he should have the majority, he should have 51%. And he was arguing, no, we should have (laughs) 50-50. And so where'd you end up? 50-50. And the attorneys advised us strongly against it. They're like, Tom, that you were creating the ultimate divorce nightmare. And I said, that is precisely what I want. And the reason for that is 
that my marriage is my number one priority. If that's really true, then the signal that I want to send to my wife by making the company 50-50 is that my completely, I'm in this with you. If you decide that, you know, we can't move forward with the company, so be it. Like you have every ability to block me. One, I know who she is. I mean, we've been together for 20 years. So I know who she is. She's not a spiteful person. So even if she believed I had done an injustice to her, that she would never be spiteful with the company. She would think of the employees. She would think of what we were trying to create. So that one is huge. But more than anything, I just needed her to know we are equals. Like we bring equal value to this and we will navigate that thing, what the friction of all that. And look, we stated very clearly, if we ever found ourselves in disagreement, may it never come to this, but if we ever find ourselves in disagreement, I can't convince you, you can't convince me of an idea in the company, then it will always be my idea that we go with. Now, the goal is that you never find yourself there, right? That yep. we don't think the same, which is the idea. We share a lot of values and that makes it very easy because we want the same thing. We're trying to get to the same place. But I heard this quote once 15 years ago that if you and your business partner think the same, one of you is irrelevant. And yep. I thought, well, that's so true. Like the goal is to have this friction between the two of you that's navigated in a healthy way, but yep. you want to see things differently. So I'm like, the magic is the friction. And we know how to navigate that. We respect each other tremendously. We don't devalue. I've been around other business people that have partners and they, they don't value their partner's differences. And I always thought that was so crazy. And so we come into it saying, look, my job is to have this big, crazy vision. Your job is to help me filter and execute. Yep. And so we come to it. And when she tells me that's a bad idea, I stop and go, maybe that really is. Like, that's your value is that I get manic. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is the next big thing. And you're like, but we don't have the resources to execute against that. So I'm happy to do that. But you, what are you going to give up? Yep. And then it's like, oh, that's a great you know, way to look at it. What's funny for her. It's like, if something's working and I come in and say, no, no, no. Like I get it, it's working. It's not the future. It's not gonna take us where we need to go. Here's where we need to go. And I've done that a hundred times, but that's how we've grown as much as we've grown, both at Quest and now at Impact Theory. And so we've earned that credibility with each other. Well, and what I've seen, and there's, a, there's a, I think, a Harvard study around this, that like the true variable to long-term successful relationships, successful marriage, et cetera, is a mutual respect. Mm -hmm. People love to talk about communication, but communication breaks down. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if that doesn't help you in the long-term, in the short-term, sure, if you're good at communicating, you can get through stuff. But long-term, you've got to assume the best in the person and assume, like when Lisa says, that's not a good idea. You have enough mutual respect to be like, okay, she's probably right. What's up? Like you respect her opinion on that. And it's funny, my business partner and I always call each other work wife because business partnership and marriage have a lot of similarities and that mutual respect and difference is super important to frankly, keep it interesting and keep it moving. So I, I think that's great. And the way you guys think about that. Thank you. And that's why we had to decide because we knew there would come times where we just disagree. So we had to come up with a system. So we never just stopped in our tracks. We both have the goal to what this company looks like in 10, 20 years. And for us to get there, we cannot stop at a disagreement. And so collectively, we just said, all right, when we disagree, who makes the final decision? And me with a lot of sobriety, I was like, it should be you. Like you think in a different way to me. And so I think that you are more trained in a 
adapt to, to being in that position. So we came up with that mutual agreement. And in the last, you know, almost five years, we've had one time where we couldn't convince each other. And we're in big team meeting, like we've got 20 employees around us. I'm saying my opinion, he's saying his, and we go back and forth. And at the end, neither of us can convince each other. And so he just said, in as we had agreed, he's like, thank you. I disagree. We're going over here. Now, in that moment, that stings, right? It's like, oh my God, and it's in front of the whole team. And I just reminded myself, hang on, Lisa, you'd agreed to this in a moment where you weren't feeling emotional and you knew that this was the best idea, like that was the best solution. So in that moment, I took a deep breath and I turned around to him and I said, cool, I disagree, but I commit. Because that's another phrase that we've adapted. Yeah. Because you can disagree, but you know when you disagree with someone, it's like you kind of sit on the sidelines waiting for them to screw up because you just want to say, I told you so. We realize that doesn't help our goal, our collective goal. So we've come up with language that we say to each other in those moments that he knows, like, even though I disagree with you, I'm in it. Like I'm going to push to win and we're in this together. So that was really important. And then the 51% just to add, I know he's going to put in more work than I am. I have health issues. I don't want to work 18 hours a day. Like that's just, I work very hard. I just don't want to work that much. So to me, it was very sober for me to say, well, you deserve the 51%. It's not like I'm giving it to you because I think I'm less. It's like, no, you're going to work more than I am. So we come at these decisions, I think from a very like, emotionally sober position and I think that's allowed us to really build something great and it seems it seems to have been now that and that it's funny you mentioned the way you look at that I was just taught by we have a CEO coach and it, something we've actually delineated through our entire executive team now is agreement is optional commitment is not and it's something we talk mm, about that's that's nice. right. I like yeah. that like, you know, once we'll d debate, we'll discuss, but once we come to this is what we're doing, you can agree or disagree, but you can't, there's no option on commitment. Like, you, no, and again, not mine. Craig Coleman taught me that, our CEO coach, but he, he's been great. Never thought, and now I get it, but we, we just hired him in like July. And before that, it was like, yeah, I get coaching. Someone else can, like, people love their coaches, et cetera. Now I'm like, oh, no, I get it. And it was articulated amazingly to me, which is every professional athlete has a coach. LeBron James has a coach, like best athletes in the world, having a third party that's knowledgeable to help a third party perspective coach you. It's just, you know, tangent, but really important. So two last questions for you guys. One, what's next? Where do you want to take this? Other than, I guess, Disney, now you kind of answered it, but would yeah, love I mean, the, you know, unfortunately there's no hidden punchline. Like we have a value chain that is you start something as either a light novel or a comic book, you develop that into film, TV, or anime. And that's our big thing. So we have two really big initiatives outside of what people know us for. So obviously all of the content that we create, the interview shows and all that, we want to expand that vein with other talent, not just the two of us. So setting that aside, our two big pushes are the university, Impact Theory University, which has been a huge win for us. And we're, we're very grateful for the students that we have there. And then the fiction side. So fiction side takes up, I don't know, at this point, probably 60% of my time. And that's really my primary focus. We have two projects out right now on Webtoon for our comics that are doing very well. I'm super excited by those. We've partnered with one of the most prestigious management companies in Hollywood, a company called LBI that represents... Leonardo DiCaprio, Cameron Diaz, Martin Scorsese, Ryan Gosling. I mean, just on and on and on. A-list. Tom Bellew and Lisa Bellew. Exactly. <laughs> and we're working with them to create both scripted and unscripted content. Yeah. So we've got seven scripted projects that we're developing and we have four unscripted projects that we're developing. So yeah, man, it's like, wow. this is one of those where... 
I called this shot a long time ago and now to like see this stuff come to fruition. So hopefully we'll have some relatively big announcements in Q1 of 2021 and people will see the moves that we've been making behind the scenes. Full circle for both of you from like, you know, pre-teenage wanting to be in film to like that, this is like the most non-linear path to get there and here you are. That's just, it, it is really that awesome. And then what would be your advice to other people that want to pursue their dreams? I mean, this is what you're kind of doing as a profession now, but we'd love to know like, what's that one piece of like, I, you know, to a 12, to that 12 year old, to that 18 year old, to that 40 year old that's trying to figure out how to get out of their own way. What would you say? All right, homie, you're writing a book on this. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. I how do you unpause your life? I would throw it to me. Oh God. You can all right, I'll give you time to like, put, so first of all, she's writing a book about how to unpause your life, which I am super excited. And I'm sure we'll be making a nice big official announcement at some point in the not too distant future. But that's really exciting. But the the real thing is just you have to understand that the the strategy that the human animal as a species has chosen is adaptation. So every species you either hardwire, right? Like a horse comes out 20 minutes later, it can walk and run and do all the things that a horse is ever going to do. Whereas a human can't for years and years and years and the brain doesn't even stop developing until you're 25. So our strategy is to take in the culture, adapt to it, and then find a way to be successful. So once you realize that you don't need to be exceptional, you just need to be an average human and then put in that work and that energy. And so it's what I call the only belief that matters. The only belief that matters is that if I put time and energy into gaining a skill, I will actually get better at that thing. And if you choose a skill that the world values and that matters to you, then you're going to love your life. You may not choose a path that has any sort of financial, you know, significant financial outcome, but honestly, that doesn't matter. The punchline of life is not money. It is not success. It is not fame. It is entirely 100% how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. It is a game of fulfillment that you're playing, simple as. That doesn't mean the money isn't powerful. It's super powerful. But it just isn't what people think it is. Yeah. So getting people to understand you can get better. So what do you want to get better at? And then commit yourself to that and everything will take care of itself. Love that. That's great. So I will add to that. Please. So one other thing is, is once you know that skill, what's the no BS of how to get it? So we joke, like, I was like, yes, I choose not to be the best pianist on the planet. You know, like I can say I, I'm, I can't play the piano or I can say I choose not to be the best pianist because no. He once turns around to me, he's like, isn't it cool to think that you could still be if you really chose to? And the answer is yes. If I gave up everything I did, if I didn't care about sleep, if I never cared about my relationship with my husband, if I played the no BS, how could I be the best pianist on the planet? It may be I have to train for 18 hours a day for the next 30 years because Lisa, you're just behind the eight ball because you don't know how to play in your 40s. So it's like, okay, cool. Now I know, am I willing to do it or not? And so I think where people misstep is they just say they can't. And yeah. I just think it's such a disservice. Instead of saying that, like I said, I just choose not to. And then when I go, what am I looking to do? What skill do I need? How do I get there? Now I have a, a guide. For me, that's very important, like an instruction manual. So it's yeah. like, okay, Lisa, for the next year, you're going to do this, this amount of times. And I know that it eventually will get me to the skill in order to have my dream. And I think what's important, I've noticed this with myself recently with picking up, I picked up flying, like flying airplanes and stuff. And like, you have to remind yourself that that's actually true. Like that, because when you go to start something, you are terrible at anything new. And you're like, you sit there, like I, I started recently taking martial arts for the first time since I was, I think, 10 years old, taking Aikido, Jiu-Jitsu. And they're like, go roll. I've never learned how to properly roll, fall. And so like, but like three classes in, I'm like actually doing it. And it's like, oh yeah, you do naturally get better. But if you don't remind yourself of that and tell yourself that, you kind of 
of resist because as you get older, frankly, the initial step is a little more painful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so no, it's super, that's really solid advice and I appreciate it. Well, guys, thank you so much for being on. This was awesome. So appreciate Thanks it. for having us. Yeah, Absolutely. thank you so much. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.